to Scientifica Radio. I'm Rakib. I am Brit. And on today's episode, we are going to unravel some of the questions behind genetics and identity. To what extent does genealogy shape our identity? And can genetic testing solve problems of cultural identity and belonging? Millions of people in search of their origins have turned to accessible genetic testing companies like 23andMe or Ancestry.com. Although this direct-to-consumer model is very popular, is it reliable? And how does it work? To explain the mechanism behind this, we spoke to Amanda Morgan at McGill University Hospital Center. My name is Amanda Morgan, and I'm a first-year genetic counseling student at McGill University. Can you explain what genetic testing is and what are they used for? Genetic tests are simply a test that look at your DNA. So genetics is the study of genes and inheritance, and it's a study of certain traits and conditions and how they're passed through generations. Um, they're really important for medicine, for uh, predicting certain diseases in individuals, but they can also be used in other ways for identifying ancestry or other information about yourself. Okay, and so when it comes to genetic testing about ancestry and genealogy, how is that done? For that I type guess. of genetic testing, you're usually doing something like a, a cheek swab, kind of like you see on TV, CSI, and you're going to be sending in your DNA sample to the company. Uh, at the laboratory, they're going to isolate your DNA and they're going to look for very specific changes um, that are maybe associated with certain different uh, populations and backgrounds. So all human beings share 99.9% and that uh, remaining percentage can tell you a little bit about your, your ancestry and your history. Mm-hmm. And so in terms of comparing or kind of estimating the percentage of someone's ancestry, does that come from a type of database or is that compared to previous samples? Uh, so one type of genetic ancestry test looks at a small portion of your DNA, the part that is only passed from one of your parents to look for a line of lineage. Um, so from the male line or the paternal line, you can be tracing with the Y chromosome, which is passed from a father to his son. Or the maternal line can be similarly traced using mitochondrial DNA, which is only passed from mother to her children. Um, and they can help you identify individuals who share common uh, maternal or paternal ancestor. Uh, those tests, uh, they're only going to be looking at, as I mentioned, just the one line. So in a family tree uh, with hundreds of people, you're only going to be identifying a couple people who are related to you. And it's going to exclude a large part of your genetic heritage. The other type of ancestry test looks at DNA from both parents and looks for small changes um, in the DNA that are related to populations. And that kind of test is comparing you against a database and they're looking for just uh, variants in certain genes that are very common in certain geographical areas. And that's very uh, database driven. Okay. And um, w- what are some things that people should consider or be wary of when they want to do genetic testing? Are there, uh, like, are there any implications or um, kind of estimations that should be taken into account um, when you do genetic testing like that? Um, specifically for ancestry testing, um, a lot of the companies will be telling you that they're going to tell you who your specific ancestors are, and they're going to be telling you something about who you are in turn. 
but what they can actually tell you is a lot more limited. And sometimes what they can tell you about your ancestry doesn't really match what your cultural identity is, and that can sometimes be a big shock for people. Hmm. I think genetic counseling, correct me if I'm wrong, but this is specifically used in a, in a clinical or a medical setting more so for disorders and talking people through what their results might mean for either their children um, or themselves. But um, when it comes to cultural identity and kind of class structure or racial structures, how do you think there's a similarity in in needing to be guided through results like that. Uh, I think that people should having more guidance from some of the companies that are providing these tests. Right now, they are not very regulated, and they aren't always required to help you interpret the results. So there's always the risk that a person who gets a shocking result or finds out that part of their cultural identity that's really important to them isn't represented in their DNA might have a really hard time interpreting or understanding that result and what that really means for them as a person. Mm -hmm. So having somebody kind of discuss with them ahead of time and understand what they want from the test and what they're hoping to do with the information that they're learning is really important. Imagine that I would like myself to uh, make a genealogy and ancestry test. Uh, What would you like me to to know before I'm going to do that test? I I would like you to do your research, to read up about the companies, what type of test they are offering. Mm -hmm. Is it something that is looking only at a single lineage line? Are they looking at markers within large geographic populations? And also, what is your cultural identity and are the results going to be shocking for you? Because the ethnicity estimates that they provide don't always really represent your identity and they don't always represent very well who your actual relatives are. Because we pass 50% of our genes to the next generation at random, it's quite possible that you might have very little in common with one of your ancestors. So it's not unexpected that you might have a very low ethnicity estimate for something that is a big part of your identity and to be willing to uh, take it with a grain of salt. Um, Although ethnicity estimates aren't very good from some of these ancestry testing, they can be put together with hard-based family genealogical traditional techniques going through the archives to create a better um, estimate and to narrow down a better idea of who your ancestors were. Um, and also, although ethnicity and you know the differences between us are really small, sometimes it is important to know your different ethnic backgrounds. Ethnicity is often used clinically in genetics for identifying certain diseases that are more common in certain backgrounds and certain populations mm-hmm. as well. So there is still value in sometimes knowing what your ethnic background is, even though we are all quite similar. Most most people do get a lot of their information scientifically from the media. And so when you hear about genetic testing, I think there's there's often a lot of hype as to, to what it can offer people. What is maybe the most, the biggest misconception about genetic testing that you hear about? That DNA has an answer for everything. There are conditions, there are many different things that really can't be explained by what is in the sequence of your DNA. And that is a limitation of just genetics. It's not It's not something that can always be explained by a genetic test. And there is an assumption by people that it will explain everything and that 
they are going to get the answer that they're looking for. So right before Christmas, uh, some serious doubts were cast on the Indigenous ancestry of renowned Canadian author Joseph Boyden, who uh, primarily writes about First Nations culture. Throughout the years, he's been very vocal about his Indigenous heritage, calling himself a white kid from Willowdale with Native roots. Yet uh, the recent investigation by the APTN, Aboriginal People's Television Network, found none of his heritage claims could be verified or backed up with concrete evidence. And this has led some people to suggest that genetic testing could easily solve the debate. But is this possible? To learn more about the implication of uh, genetic testing uh, on indigenous identity, we spoke to Dr. Kim Tolbert. Kim Tolbert, Associate Professor, uh, Faculty of Native Studies, University of Alberta, um, Canada Research Chair in Indigenous Peoples, Technoscience and Environment. What kind of uh, genetic testing is done in uh, Indigenous uh, communities? There are two types of genetic testing that are applicable to conversations about Indigenous identity in the U.S. and Canada. So the first one is the one that's more commonly understood among the public, uh, and that's genetic ancestry testing. And you can you know, go to companies like uh, 23andMe, Family Tree DNA, etc., and buy a genetic ancestry test that will help you look at your genetic lineages as tracing back to particular continents in the world. Um, and those tests include mitochondrial DNA tests. Uh, they also include uh, Y-chromosome tests. And then they include uh, the autosomal DNA tests that return the percentage uh, DNA results. Those uh, types of tests are the ones that the public are commonly buying. And so, um, but they don't have, because they point back to founding ancestors in the Americas or Europe or Asia or wherever people's lineages point back to. They are not useful for First Nations in Canada or for tribal governments in the United States in terms of their tribal or band membership. Because uh, in the U.S. and Canada, federally recognized indigenous communities, um, so those communities that have those relationships with the settler state, are interested in uh, documenting the relationship between applicants for membership uh, in a tribe or a First Nation and uh, lists of indigenous people uh, on lists uh, of people on the base roles. And so those roles were constructed in the U.S. around the turn of the 20th century. I think it was similar in Canada. Um, and roles of, uh, na of Indians, that was the language used at the time, were constructed because the settler state had to manage uh, indigenous people. So what they were often involved in doing was uh, breaking up the communal land base that indigenous people had into individual allotments. Um, and a lot of that was designed to give excess land away to settlers. And so in order to decide uh, how to break up that land and give it to heads of household and that which was always men, and then, you know, men with wives could get a little extra and men with children could get a little extra on top of that. In order to do that uh, management of land, they had to have these lists of Indians in order to decide who got land and then how much excess was left over. So what you have today is uh, indigenous communities now tracing membership back to those base roles. And so the genetic uh, ancestry testing that points to founders in the Americas is not helpful because it's not pointing back to named individuals in relatively recent history. Mm -hmm. It's more like an ethnic ancestry mm -hmm. test. So the parentage test comes into play in, in some cases in tribes and First Nations because 
um, in uh, you may have in any community where somebody's trying to document uh, their descent from somebody on the base role, uh, paternity occasionally comes into question. And so what will happen then is they will do a DNA parentage test in order to establish the uh, or to verify the biological link between an enrollment applicant and the, the person on that base role. So tribes and First Nations um, often use a DNA, a DNA parentage test on a case-by-case basis, but it's coupled with those existing uh, descent rules. Um, there are very few tribes, I think especially in the U.S., uh, that have very lucrative uh, gaming operations who, and very small populations who are doing DNA testing across the membership, and this leads to a lot of problems because, as you know, as you might know, you can walk into any room and you could test, do a DNA parentage test on everybody in there, and you're going to get some level of misattributed paternity. Mm-hmm. Not everybody has the biological father they think they have, and so this causes a lot of problems in communities. So that that test, but that test is used much more commonly. The genetic ancestry test. I've been at uh, national tribal enrollment conferences in the U.S. and had a tribal enrollment staff who are intimately familiar with enrollment criteria say, we get these uh, genetic ancestry test results from people in the mail who want to try to join our tribe, and we're just, they throw up their hands. They don't know what to do with them because they're not pointing back to a person on the base role. But those tests are the ones that the public knows far more about because the public that's taking the test, people that don't have existing lived affiliations with indigenous communities, to them they're quite often thinking more about a racial category or an mm-hmm. ethnic designation mm-hmm. than they are trying to um, establish an identity as a as an kind of an individual as an individual within an indigenous people if that makes sense yeah and so and you've just touched upon like you know racial categorization and and ideology um and in a paper that you published um you wrote that genetic testing in regards to racial ideology is reminiscent of uh eugenics in the 19th century so um what is problematic about genetic testing being used as a test or an indicator of indigenous identity well, if you're talking about genetic ancestry testing, I mean, I think there's different problems depending on the type of test you're using and who's using it. But in relationship to genetic ancestry testing, what we're seeing is a, um, a reaffirmation of the non-Indigenous public's idea that what it is to be Indigenous is, to, is this sort of racial claim. So one can go back and find a, you know, a long-ago Indian in the ancestral tree mm-hmm. and make some kind of claim based on that. That is not the way that Indigenous peoples themselves uh, decide who belongs to them and who they want to claim. Um, and it's not that we don't care about biological or genetic descent. Obviously, we do put uh, some emphasis on that, but that's one criteria among a broader body of, of ways of thinking about who belongs to us and who should be affiliated with us. So again, there's a, there's a reaffirmation, I think, of long-standing old-school concepts of race in genetic ancestry testing that I know geneticists hope, they hope those long-standing narratives of race will be undercut by genetic testing, but they're both undercut and reaffirmed at the same time. So there's a Mm -hmm. lot of really interesting kind of race craft that goes on around these genetic tests. Mm -hmm. The problems with the DNA parentage test are what I mentioned before, the the, uh, chance that you're going to find across a population some misattributed paternity and you're going to have all kinds of problems um, uh, among families and continuity of lineage. Uh, if you do that, it just it causes a lot of divisiveness in communities. Um, the second thing is you're also you end up reaffirming the notion that biological connection uh, matters more than than other forms of connection. And so I do worry that while the parentage tests I think are legitimate in some cases, um, 
if you're doing an if you're doing an across the board uh, testing of parentage, this is this is really problematic. I think the uh, the uh, downsides outweigh the benefits on a case by case basis. I have less problem with it. Okay. And uh, how do indigenous people determine who belongs to their community? So um, well, it, it depends on the tribe or the First Nation, right? So there are some patterns. Um, and there are some pretty vibrant uh, discussions and debates within our communities. Mm -hmm. um, there, so I can give you some of the main criteria and then talk about how those have changed over time. Um, we do document lineal biological descent, as I said, from people on the base roles. Now, we, in some tribes or First Nations, they might have a a quote-unquote blood quantum level, and this gets really complicated. So in my tribe, for example, uh, we have a one-quarter blood quantum level. Now, there's no real examination of, of, of blood as a physiological substance going on. These are fractions that have been noted on paper or, over the course of time, and they actually go back to, I think, when uh, Indian agents or tribal government officials uh, were, were writing down um, you know, fractions of Native American descent on paper. And, and so, for example, when they were during the allotment era, when they were having to divide up the land base, they, they uh, had rules, the federal government did, about who could have land title. And so um, people who were viewed as mixed bloods, and there's always scare quotes around these words, mm -hmm. so, you know, if they have a one white parent and one Native parent, mm -hmm. they would have been viewed as people who were closer to white people, closer to being civilized. They were able to accept individual land title. The feeling at the time was, around the turn of the 20th century, that quote-unquote full-blood Indians did not have the uh, evolutionary or cultural capacity to manage private property, and so they were not given title to the land. And so there's an incentive there to be marking who's one-half Native American who's one quarter, who's full blood or whatever. And then you get those fractions established at that time. And over the course of time, the offspring, um, the descendants of those, of those initial people on the rolls have all of these fractions attached to their names from different tribal lineages. And so you get somebody like me today, you know, a hundred and some years later, who's showing 116th uh, Flandreau Santee Sioux, 132nd Siston Wapdenoyate, one quarter Cheyenne Arapaho. That's how you get all of these 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 blood quantum lineages. Now some tribes will say we only care about direct descent from a from a base role. Yeah. Um, some tribes will say we want to trace to the base role, but we want one quarter total Indian blood. That's how my tribe is. Um, okay. Some tribes, as I've said, have completely dispensed with the idea of blood quantum and are just looking at lineal descent. I'm not sure how it, it works across Canada. They've got more federal oversight of their blood rules than we do in the U.S. now. So it's it's really complicated. And so we have a lot of vibrant conversation in our communities today about, you know, the downside of blood quantum. Why are we using these antiquated kinds of racial ideas? We should be going back to traditional forms of membership, which would have involved, you know, people adopted into the tribe through marriage, mm -hmm. through, through adoption. People would just be born into the tribe. Um, Pre-World War II, surprisingly, even though blood quantum rules were newer back then, um, Tribes still actually had greater numbers of uh, enrollment rules that allowed for spouses to be adopted into a tribe. Um, today, you will, you will not see that in any tribe that I know of in the United States where sp spouses can become members just because they marry a member. What happened was with urbanization, 
um, in world around World War II, uh, the vast majority of Native people pre-World War II in the United States lived on reservations. Uh, they really began migrating to urban areas, uh, both for employment and to join the military in World War II. Uh, and there were also federal relocation programs. So if the federal government felt like you know Native Americans were doing a bad job of becoming assimilated, and they thought if they relocated them to urban areas, they would become more assimilated, and the Indian problem would go away. So at that time, you have a lot of people moving off reservation, and um, tribes at home could no longer just enroll the children and spouses of members. They began to worry about people going out, uh, marrying and having children with non-Native people, then they might try to move back home, and perhaps their roles would be flooded with people who were not really culturally affiliated with their community, and also they couldn't handle these increases in population necessarily when they had limited land base, limited housing and employment resources. And there are many similar kinds of dynamics in Canada as well, although, as I said, their blood rules are, are a little bit different because the feds still have more oversight. It's complex. Oh, it's very complex, yeah. It's very, very... The ba basic genetics is easier to get than the basics of blood rules and tribal enrollment. It really is. <laughs> you hear a lot of anecdotal stories of people claiming to have, you know, quote-unquote, indigenous blood. Um, and here in, in Quebec, it's it's quite common... Um, mm -hmm. quite common to hear that. And I, I've heard in other interviews you uh, pointing out that uh, there's a common claim of being related to Pocahontas in, in the state of Virginia. So w why right. do you think it's such a, it's such a prevalent claim um, that particularly white Americans are making? Well, yeah, Americans and Canadians now too. Uh, you know, there's a, there's a lot written on this actually by both historians and anthropologists who look at this phenomenon of playing Indian, as Philip Deloria calls it in his book from 1998. Um, and playing Indian can occur in a variety of forms. You know, we see people dressing up in red face as mascots, right? Mm -hmm. um, we, you know, he writes about people playing Indian in the Boston Tea Party, in the 19th century fraternal orders, in the Boy Scouts, in the New Age movement, in mascots. And we also see people actually appropriating a Native American identity. Now, it's really interesting because this goes, again, back to the difference between... There's a couple of things that goes back to. One of them is the difference between settler definitions of indigeneity mm -hmm. and indigenous people's own definitions. So as I said, settlers, again, tend to think about these racial categories in which a person can claim you know, a Native American identity based on one ancestor. I would actually like to see us uh, move into a place, and I know there are scholars that are working on papers and books related to this, where one ancestor alone um, is not does not make a claim to indigenous identity. And if we can get to that point where we can understand that somebody can be white or black or anything else and have one indigenous ancestor somewhere, but if they focus on who have they been socialized by and where which communities have they been socialized in, they don't necessarily need to make a claim to indigenous identity. If we can mm -hmm. get to that point, then we're not going to have to waste our time debating whether or not somebody actually has a documentable ancestor 100 or 2 or 300 years ago. Yeah. Um, the other thing it goes back to is this deep desire to belong on these continents and to not feel like a newcomer. And, I, you know, I was on a radio show the other day where I was, uh, I don't have the quote in front of me, but I was quoting from uh, D.H. Lawrence in Phil Deloria's book where he was talking about, and he's writing this back at the late 19th, early 20th century, about the need for um, settlers or newcomers to belong to this land. And he was saying that until the Indian is either exterminated or assimilated, 
there's going to continue to be an American identity crisis. And so I think that's kind of what we're faced with. I, I don't think, and again, I'm relying on, on historical and anthropological examinations of this problem. I don't think, I think settlers are experiencing too much cognitive dissonance mm-hmm. between their desire to belong to this place and the genocide, violence, and non-consent of colonialism upon which the U.S. and Canada were built. And I think people cannot resolve that ethically in their minds. Then one of the ways to do that is to claim to be indigenous themselves. And to be on the opposite side of the oppressor in like a self-validation type of way. For for me, it's strange to see the difference between, you know, First Nation in in reserve and all the social implication and the poverty and not funding and so on on reserve and the idealization of First Nation and the desire to to belong to First Nation. It's just... uh, it's like the complete dismissal of reality. Is that what you're? Well, yeah. I think I think that's partly. I think there's a there's a there's an implicit denial that colonization happened, and so okay. this is where you get these narratives about about you know uh, traditionalism versus people being sold out and colonized. You know, colonization happened. You know, this is why we've got these these rates of poverty because the people were dispossessed from from their homelands. You know, their life ways were undercut. Their relationships with their non-human relatives, with the land and the water. And the, and the animals that we call our relatives was completely disrupted. And th- therefore, you've got, you know, the, um, these rates of poverty, you've got epidemic uh, rates of, of health problems such as type 2 diabetes that are directly related to um, undercutting relationships with place. And mm-hmm. so we can't uphold these ideas of, of, of the noble savage living a traditional lifestyle without completely denying that colonization happened. Now, I think one of the things that would be better to focus on is rather than claiming an Indian ancestor in your family tree and trying to disavow colonialism, it would be better to think about how to live in good relationship with this place. Um, and so I think this is, this is what some of the, the great work of uh, contemporary indigenous activists are doing, both Idle No More and the, and the people at Standing Rock. Yeah. They're really looking at how indigenous people and newcomers uh, can live in better relationship with this place, and they're actually using the defense of indigenous treaty rights as a way to say, hey, you know, if you're defending our treaty rights and defending the land and environmental integrity, that's going to be good for all of the people that are here now. And so for me, it's we need to get our focus off trying to go back and appropriate some Indian ancestor and, you know, and, and actually think about how we're living in this place today. I'm white from Belgian origin and I was okay but how can I say that I am Belgian you know with a genetic test of course not and that's when I, I yeah. realized that yeah but in fact it's a occidental identity crisis and that is happening now and once again we are using indigenous people to help us right understand ourselves just i mean if you look at the historical literature in the u.s the identity crisis has been going on since before the revolutionary war this is a long-standing problem um and again you're you're exactly right i i tend to look at the appropriation of indigenous identities and histories as one more form of appropriation right if they took the land they've taken control of the water of the resources beneath the land um they've made all of the laws they've decided what counts as as black, white, and red, they've set up different racial categories and defended that in their courts of law. You know, the last thing they can take is our very identity itself, and they'll take blood and DNA in order to get at that. You've had um, 
you know, prominent geneticists like Spencer Wells from the Genographic Project say to an Indigenous person on film, you know, you guys have your stories, you have your traditional stories. We, quote-unquote, Europeans, he's an American, do not. We need your DNA in order to reconstruct our stories because we've lost them. I mean, it's just so appropriative. And I realize that people think that they're making some sort of multicultural liberal statement, you know, we're all African under the skin, but there's these much more insidious forms of racism and appropriation that are going on simultaneously that get mixed up with these supposedly anti-racist narratives. And so it's really hard to tease all of this out. And, And with that being said, how do you think genetic testing then challenges or interferes with the way Indigenous communities view themselves? Uh, more and more tribes in the U.S. and First Nations in Canada are adopting um, paternity testing um, as a matter of course. And those same companies that do paternity testing also often sell genetic ancestry testing. And uh, tribes and First Nations tend to get their science advising from non-Indigenous scientists who have very little or no experience in Indigenous communities. Mm-hmm. And remember I said that basic genetics is easier to understand than the basics of uh, Indigenous blood rules and histories of colonization. So they often don't understand the sort of dynamic social context in which tribes have emerged. And by dynamic, I don't always mean good. I mean, colonialism was incredibly dynamic. And so they tend to advise uh, tribes and First Nations from this standpoint of having very little social and political understanding of colonization. And so they give them bad science advice. And this is why I'm an advocate of uh, Indigenous people actually becoming geneticists and training in other forms of Western science, we need better science advising that doesn't only think about the state of the art of the technologies that we're using, but that also thinks about how those technologies get articulated within our communities and how they keep in mind histories of colonization and the way that Indigenous peoples have moved around, the social and political reasons why we can't be conflated with a biological population. Geneticists don't seem to understand that. They seem to view tribes and First Nations are synonymous with the genetic population, and that's just completely ahistorical, but they don't know that history. Thank you to Dr. Kim Talbert and Amanda Morgan for uh, their insight. And to you for listening. If you want to find out more about today's episode, you can check us out on our Facebook page and also on our website, scientifica.wordpress.com. And that's it for us. See you later. 